Did you can uh, the kids? You guys are dismissed to the classes for you, and you can turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter fifteen, and we'll be starting at verse eight. Romans chapter fifteen, verse eight. And I'd just like to thank uh, Kurt and Pam again, too, for opening up their home last night uh, for the uh, church uh, Christmas party. Um, I do have to say it was a, it was a joy to sit there and watch, um, being a guy that's from the East Coast, knowing what a, then a white uh, elephant exchange looks like in the Midwest, where you have a lot of uh, gun shells being passed around, and bison, and meat, and cheese, and all sorts of other stuff that, you know... It, when someone opens it and the first someone yells, what caliber is that, uh, that guy? You know, you're like, well, we're definitely in the Midwest here. So, um, If you didn't get a chance to, you'll have to wait a whole other year for that. So start thinking about what that white elephant gift might be. Let's pray and uh, ask God's blessing upon our time. Dearly Father, thank you for the time that we get to spend in these last several weeks here reminding ourselves anew over and over and over again. The fact that you came to save, you stepped into this world, a world of hurt and sorrow, a world of pain and suffering to bring life, to bring hope, to bring peace, to bring love and joy. And so, dearly Father, help us not to forget these things as they can become so, uh, so almost to the point where we, we don't even think and we just say words and we just say things and we don't realize the depth of meaning that is there. So awaken in us anew. The truths that are found in this time, the truths that are found in Advent, to remind ourselves of that great need of salvation. In your Son's name we pray. Amen. We lit the uh, joy candle, the candle today that's remind us of the joy of Christmas. And I was thinking, you know, what's a good illustration to start off with to get our minds wrapped around this idea of joy? And so, uh, since, as Brian reminded us, that we've uh, run out of right now the expecting mothers, I was thinking about my own life and the time where, when Hannah was born, and I was able to bring Hannah up to Allison, and Allison was able to see Hannah for the first time. And that smile that came across my wife's face, when she got to see the baby that she had been longing for these last nine months, and me more stressing out these last nine months of, you know, the pain and the heartache and the sorrow and all those things that come with the pregnancy and all of that, so then finally to see that baby's face for the first time and the joy that comes over the mother's face. Now, I want to be honest for a moment. If you've ever seen a baby when it's first born, all right, as a dad, I'm looking at this thing that's covered in all sorts of who knows what, right? And the head is deformed because it just came out of, a, you know, the woman. And now you're sitting there going like this, and there's sounds and smells all over the place, and you're trying to, to bring this baby up. And I'll be honest, there was nothing in this that went, wow, look at, look at this thing. But when I brought it up to my wife's face, in spite of all of the, the stuff that was there, just the joy of seeing her baby. And in my mind, I try to think about that anticipation, all right? And so when you see that, that anticipation in the mother's face when she holds her baby for the first time, keep that locked in your brain as we walk through joy, all right? Keep that, that smile that creeps over the face that at one moment there was pain and sorrow, and now all of a sudden there's joy, all right? And so just keep that in your mind as we go through. So when we think of the joy of Advent, and I've asked you to turn to Romans 15, verse 8. I want to begin reading this and then break down this passage here a little bit and then launch from there into all the other, many of the biblical texts that remind us of what 
Paul is speaking here in Romans. Let's start in verse 8. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing of your name. And again it is said, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and tell the peoples to extol him. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come, even those who arise to rule the Gentiles. In him will the Gentiles hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. So when we think of this text here, now I know Brian has walked through a little bit in Sunday school about the Jew and the Gentile interaction and everything there. I will not try to to dive into that right now, but I just want to walk through this this text here that Paul is writing. And so just to give you a little bit of the biblical historical narrative that was going through in the Bible, come Genesis 12, God is working on bringing about a beautiful redemption. And remember, right then the world had rebelled. And it's like we're longing for who is this offspring that we talked about way back at Hope that's going to come and is going to redeem. Who is this offspring going to be? And all of a sudden he grabs a pagan man. This pagan man, his name is Abram, will be later named Abraham. And he says to Abram, Get going, I'm going to show you where to go. Start moving. And Abraham starts moving. And as Abraham then is going where God has called him to go, God comes down and he says to Abraham, through you will come a family and descendants. And he tells them how many they'll be. They'll be like numbered all over the place. And through you, all the world will be blessed. And so now all of a sudden we're starting to see these promises being fulfilled being fulfilled. And the first one we see being fulfilled, literally, we see that this promise through him, all the worlds will be blessed. This covenant that God made with Abraham is now being played out through Jesus coming and through Abraham's seed. And so what we see is this seed that is coming from Abraham, where the Jewish people and the Jewish people, if you want to say, were the beachhead, the ones that gave us, through them came the Messiah. The promised one came through them. And so we see that this promised Messiah that was given to the Jews was not just given to the Jews, but to the Gentiles as well. And what does Paul say? He says over and over again, he's quoting verse after verse after verse after verse, that the Gentiles are also receiving this blessing, this blessing that Abraham's descendant one day will bless all the nations. We see that found in Jesus Christ and him alone. And notice what it's going to be. In verse 13, so this God of hope, why is he God of hope? Because what he has promised, he has done. And if what he has promised, he has done, that means everything he has yet to fulfill, he will fulfill, just like he fulfilled it to the patriarchs. So he's fulfilling it to the Gentiles as well, because Paul's saying this was part of the plan all along. And we see, may the God of hope fill you with joy and peace in believing. So this God of hope is going to fill us with joy and And even notice the other candle that we talked about before, peace and believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. So we have to grapple with, then, this fulfilled promise that brings about joy. So what is this joy that is going to bring about? So we need to spend some time talking about Christian joy. And what is this joy that the Bible speaks of? And so in your notes there, I defined for you 
that Christian joy, now again, this is a Tim definition, so do not, you know, it is what it is. Christian joy is, I'm going to argue, is, is a spontaneous emotional response of the heart to the truth. The truth is revealed, and then we respond in joy, almost the same way, like back to our mother situation. The mother gets to see her baby for the first time, and what does she respond in? In the joy of that is there. Now, we will talk about Christian joy is not a response to pleasant circumstances. Let's follow along that same analogy. The baby has just come out. There's a whole lot of sewing up and a whole lot of putting back together that needs to take place there. I'm speaking very general terms of what just happened. But the mother gets the baby given to her. And it's almost as if like everything else doesn't matter at that time. I get to see this anticipated child is finally in my arms. And as if like the next 15, 20 minutes are just a blur of what happened because I'm finally holding this anticipated child in my arms. All right. And the guys are standing there going, I don't know what to do right now because I'm, I'll just go stand over in the corner and you let me know when I can hold my baby. All right. And so we're, we're left with that mindset in our mind that is a spontaneous emotional response of the heart to the truth. It is not a response to just pleasant circumstances because circumstances can change. This is the truth that we're responding to. It is also a product or we would also call it a fruit of the spirit. So the Spirit is dwelling within you. One of the fruits that come from a Spirit-filled person is joy. It will naturally come from a Spirit-filled person. So that means, we would say, it is, not, it is not a human joy. It is literally the very joy of Christ that has filled us. Notice again what the text says. May the God of hope fill you with all joy. This is a joy that does not come from man. He doesn't say, I need to work this joy up. Literally, Paul is telling us this joy is coming from God filling us with it. So another way of saying it is Christian joy then is soundly and firmly planted in Christ and his promises. Just like the promises that were given to Abraham were being fulfilled, and some are yet to be fulfilled. Just like those promises have been fulfilled, we are also seeing then the future promises will be fulfilled as well. And we can anchor in that. So this hope, again, remember, it's not a hope that when we lit that first candle, it's like, I just, I hope that that fly ball will be caught by the outfielder. All right. This is one that is saying it, it is a guarantee that it has happened in the past and is anchored because of what has been done in the past. It will be done in the future. So my hope is not a blind hope. It's not I jump into the darkness and I hope someone catches me. This is a hope that is anchored on God and God alone. And since it is, our response to these promises being fulfilled is joy. And even Paul will go on to say peace as well. So this is not a superficial or flimsy peace. Because this joy, this flimsy joy that the world tries to offer does not hold up what God's joy that he has to give us is a joy that will stand the test of time, and a joy that will stand the waves of this world going against us. Turn with me to staying in Romans there, what Paul talks about it. Go back to Romans chapter 5. I just want to walk through this joy, and now another um, word for joy would also be the word rejoice, all right? And so there's the same, having the same root there. And in Romans chapter 5, listen as we read verses 1 through 5. 
Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we also have attained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. More than that, we rejoice, and notice this, it's almost like as we're reading through that, that sounds pretty cool, everything's going well, and now the text is going to confront us with this. More than that, meaning that we rejoice in the salvation and the work that God has given us, more than that, we rejoice in our suffering knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit that has been given to us. We rejoice in our suffering. And we ask ourselves, really? We rejoice in our suffering. The reason why we're able to rejoice in our suffering is because we're going to start to continue to see that the believer gets to see the big picture. Because Paul exposes it to us here. We rejoice in our suffering, and he tells us why. Because our suffering, he literally goes on to tell us, our suffering starts to produce an endurance, an adoring faith which produces the character, and that character produces hope, hope in God, and that hope is not put to shame because why? God has poured out his love in our hearts. Staying with the same argument that Paul is going with, turn a couple pages back to 2 Corinthians 6. In 2 Corinthians 6, Paul is continuing with this theme of taking joy in suffering because what we're going to see in 2 Corinthians 6, we're going to see that the Christian world views the world completely different. And we will start in verse 2. 2 Corinthians 6, we'll start in verse 2. For he says, in a favorable time I listened to you, in the day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. We put no obstacle in anyone's way, so that no fault may be found with our ministry. But as servants of God, we commended ourselves in every way, but by great endurance, in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger, by purity, Knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, by truthful speech and by the power of God, with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left, through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise, we are treated as impostors and yet are true, as unknown and yet well known, as dying and behold we live, as punished and yet killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, having nothing yet possessing all Things. And so what we're seeing here is Paul is going to say we, the Christian world is viewing things completely differently than the world does. The world sees you as not having much. And what does the Christian say? We have everything in Christ. The world says you have suffering. And we say, no, we have rejoicing. It is not that as if the Christian does not see what's going on around them, but they see the big picture of what's going on around them. Notice it's not saying that you don't have sorrow. You have sorrow, but you view it in a totally different way than the world views sorrow. Because joy is an emotion that endures, but it endures even through flourishing and heartache and sorrow. In that emotion, in that sorrow and heartache, it flourishes. That joy is something that when suffering and everything beats around it, it actually grows greater 
It does not diminish. The things that this world would say would strip you of joy, the believer says these are actually the things that God uses to create more joy, to flourish even more. These are the things that God strengthens us through. And so we we look at these things and we say, but this is not normal. And we would say, you're right, there's nothing normal, if you want to call it on the earthly speaking realm of a believer. Because we have, those of us who know Christ have been born anew to a new way of living, a new way of seeing reality. So the things that were of this world are slowly passing away, and we're seeing things completely different than the world around us does. So when we're interacting with our friends, we're interacting with co-workers, the things that they're pursuing after to bring them joy are only going to be found that it doesn't bring them joy at all. But for the believer, we see that even in the heartache and sorrow, of life, there is still joy. And we say, well, why is that? Is it just because these believers are just a weird group of people that are just, you know, the wackies that are out there? I'm going to go, no, it actually is based in our leader, his example. Let's receive point two, Christ is our example in this. Turn your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 12. Because remember, as the Bible tells us in other passages that the follower is not any greater than his master because when the follower is fully trained, he will be like his teacher. And who is our teacher? Who is the believer's teacher? Christ and Christ alone. Hebrews chapter 12. Now, Hebrews chapter 11 is that great hall of fame, of, or faith, I mean, that, that great hall of faith that is being proclaimed about how all these people of old have lived faithfully in very difficult times. In chapter 12, it says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses. And now, what are they witnessing to? They are witnessing to what a life here on earth amongst sinful hardship and all of the things that are living on this earth, how they can keep their eyes focused on Christ and Christ alone, pointing others to Him. Because notice how the text goes on. So, as we're surrounded by these who have witnessed, and what are they witnessing to? The faithfulness of God. So then let us, what should we do? Lay aside every weight and so sin, sin which so easily entangle us and let us run with endurance the race set before us, looking unto Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Now, here's the example. For the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising its shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. What we see here. When we light this middle, can- this middle candle here, this joy candle, what we see is reminding ourselves that before the world began, the decree that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit decided that they were going to do, they were going to redeem a people for themselves, and this decree was carried out. And as this decree was carried out, we come to time and space where Jesus, who had been sent not to do his own will, but the will of the Father that was given him as the cross is right in front of him. And we know when we're talking about this joy that was set before him, we remember that he was fully God and fully man. And we see in the garden in John 17, as he is wrestling through these things, sweating great drops of blood, where he is saying, if this be possible, let this pass from me. But then we see the the Godhead saying, no, this is what we have been decreed. And my will to obey the Father is greater than any other physical desire that I have. I'm going to say no to these physical struggles that are going to have. And it was like a, a, a man with his eyes focused on what was in front of him. He said, not my will, but your will be done. And he's ready to drink the cup all the way to the end. And Paul here in writing this, he saw that joy that was set before him. It was not as if 
he just didn't get, it wasn't like Jesus didn't understand what crucifixion was all about. I want to make sure we're clear on this. This was not an ignorance. But what he was able to do was see far past this momentary suffering on the cross to understand that through this death on the cross, that many sons would come to glory, and not only that, he would be seated at the right hand of the throne of God. He saw the big picture. Now, I want to take for a moment here, and just in your mind, I'm going to be going through Matthew 18 with the Good Shepherd, but I just want to walk you through this example that Jesus gave. When we think about the joy of salvation, we think about when Jesus literally standing there, the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. Now, in Matthew 18, we have the, the story of a shepherd, and the shepherd knows his sheep, because as the sheep are coming into the fold, the shepherd is counting them. And it's clear that he's got 99 there, and there's supposed to be 100. All right? The shepherd is not sitting there going, I don't know how many sheep are here. Whoever comes in, we're good. No, the shepherd has an intimate relationship with the sheep because he knows when one is missing. And this is an example of salvation here. What the shepherd does, he doesn't say, these sheep are so stupid, I can't believe one of them never figured out how to get here. How could that one have wandered off? I don't understand it. These sheep are just so dumb. Well, you know what? They're going to get what's coming to them. No, what the shepherd does is he takes the initiative and he goes and finds the sheep. What are we seeing there? The, she the sheep cannot find its way back because the sheep are really dumb animals. All right? and that's why the Bible compares us to sheep. All right? I'm, I'm, the Bible calls you dumb sheep. All right? Literally, that's what it talks about. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. We've all followed our, to our own way. Right? We're all doing our own things. It's just like trying to herd cats. All right, and so as you're following this, this is who we are, but what do we see in that picture? The shepherd goes out, and when a shepherd finds the sheep, the shepherd does not sit there and give a long treat. It's about how stupid the sheep is. What does the shepherd do? He gathers the sheep up, he brings the sheep back, and he's rejoicing over the fact that what was lost has now been found. And this is the picture of salvation. You guys, and me included, we are lost beyond lost. The shepherd doesn't stand there and say, hey, sheep, whenever you want to come in, come on in. The door's open, you figure it out. Because guess what we would do? We would keep going our own way. This is what we see in our lost and dying world right now. You literally can lay the truth in front of them, and then they take the truth and say, nope, that's a lie. We're going to create our own truth, and we're going to kill ourselves on this truth. And our hearts break for that, because by God's grace, those of us in this room that are saved, our eyes have been opened to see and so we don't look down our noses and say, I can't believe they're there, because where were we? We were just there, just like them, lost. And what was the answer to our problem? Not a well-crafted argument, it was Christ and Christ alone. And so when we look at the story here, we see again, when we think about the joy of salvation, the joy of Christ and redemption, that the shepherd knows his sheep. The shepherd is the initiator. He goes after what was lost and then rejoice, rejoicing that the shepherd had when he found his lost sheep. And so I want to pause for a moment and make sure we understand this big picture, this joy that is found in Christmas, because here's what we have. Remember in Genesis 3.15, where we got that in the midst of all of the curses being poured out on man for their rebellion against God. And in the middle of that, there's a promise that one day an offspring of Eve is going to come and is going to destroy the serpent, yet this victor will have a bruised heel. It'll be a wounded victor, and we see that in the cross. Remember when that was coming, 
And we, with that long anticipation, one person after another, after another, after another, not the guy, not the guy, not the guy, and we continually keep wondering, what is it going to be? What's going to happen? And that anticipation that rises, that is there. And that continual over and over again, when will we be delivered? What the crazy cool part about Christmas is, and on Christmas Eve when we light this middle candle here, what we're going to see is the shepherd. It's almost like that first step that the shepherd makes to go after and get his sheep. And the excitement, because when the shepherd leaves the flock to go get his sheep, guess what he's going to get? He is going to get his sheep. He is going to do what it takes to bring his sheep into the fold. Because why? The shepherd knows his sheep. And the sheep will hear his voice and they will come. And so we celebrate at Christmas, not only the promise of it, if you want to call it, the shepherd is on the move. And this is the joy that we start to see, that the God, God became flesh to dwell among us. Why? to actually bring salvation, to accomplish what he has set. And no matter what hell is going to go against him, he will prevail because he will find his sheep. And this is the joy of Christmas. I want to take a moment here and go back to the passage that the Bucks read. Go to Zephaniah chapter 3. If you don't know where Zephaniah is, go to Malachi and keep on working your way back. Matthew, then go back to Malachi, then you got Zechariah, then you got Haggai, and then you have Zephaniah. There's an interesting phrase here in Zephaniah 3.17. We're in poetic and prophetic terms in verse... 17 of Zephaniah, the Lord your God is in your midst. And we see that playing out where Jesus literally came and he became flesh. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love and he will exalt over you with loud singing. Now, I want to be sure we're clear on this. I mean, think about this for a second. God is singing over you. When he sees you, what is he doing? He is singing over you, not because of how brilliant of a sheep you are. You want to make sure we're following that. But because the sheer fact that you are saved is a proclamation of the great truth of salvation that was planned before the foundation of the world to save and redeem, and you are an image bearer of God's great mercy and grace. And so when he sees that, he is rejoicing over you, not because of anything intrinsically valuable about you, but because you are a picture of the saving work of Christ and the joy that he takes over. And we're going to spend a lot of time next week when we talk about love, looking through this beautiful plan of redemption. And so as God is singing over us, as God takes great joy in bringing many sons to glory as as we're reminded of, we're going to see then how does this joy work out in the believer's life. When we think about how this joy works out, again, remember, the joy, joy again, is that spontaneous emotional response to the truth. So I want to see this played out. Turn your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 10. And I want to give you a little bit of the background of what's going on here in Hebrews chapter 10. In Hebrews chapter 10, the writer is writing to a group of people that are, are being persecuted, And as he's writing this, 
Let me give you just a little illustration of prison back in these days. So if you were in prison back when Hebrews was written, they did not have a meal plan in the prison world, all right? Nor did they have all the other stuff that we have today in our prisons. If you were in prison, you only got food if someone brought you food, all right? And so if you were in there for some type of punishment or something else, if people wanted to bring you a blanket or clothing and stuff like that, they bring it to you because you're not getting this stuff given to you. So let's think about this for a moment. If you are in jail because you have rebelled against the culture at that time and said something, like Jesus is God or something else like that, you are in jail. Whoever brings you food is going to be probably someone that's sympathetic towards your plight and towards your misery. So let's think about that for a moment. I take a cloak to a guy that's in there for being a traitor to the state. What do you think is going to be on my back? You're probably a traitor as well. It's only a matter of time until we catch you. And so the question is going to be, who's going to bring him the first meal? Because we care about this person. So everyone who goes in to visit him is going to be associated with this person. You go to Hebrews chapter 10, and here's what is happening in Hebrews chapter 10. Look at verse 34. For you had compassion on those who were in prison. So that means you're taking food to those who are in prison. And you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since they knew that you yourselves had a better possession and abiding one. Let's pause here for a second. Think this through. I go take the cloak to person X that is in jail. Guess what's happening while I'm taking this cloak to person X who is in jail? My possessions are being plundered. Guess where the cops are going to be? Nowhere to be found because what have I associated myself with? This treasonous person. So what we had were followers of God being thrown into prison, and as people went in to help comfort them, they were then putting a mark on all of their stuff that then people said, we're just going to go take them because they're followers of this God that we're not going to follow after. But what did they do? They saw the bigger picture. They said the bigger picture is the joy that we have in Christ, and so all of this material stuff is nothing. It's just stuff that I can't take with me anyway. I mean, most of our stuff we're going to find out, we send it to goodwill, right? And we buy it back again, right? And we have all of these things that we just get rid of. And these people were able to see the greater joy was to be with one another, that fellowship with one another that was there. And you know what? If I'm on my way to go and give someone a hot meal in prison so I associate with them, I'm more concerned about associating with followers of God than anything this world has to offer behind me. This is where we had the concept of these people that were so committed to what God had given them in Hebrews here. This is where then all of a sudden it's interesting. We go right into Hebrews 11 where we hear these are people that the world was not worthy because what did they do? They saw the big picture. I mean, think about that for a moment. If right now you knew that the sheer fact that you were at CBC, all of your homes right now, could any, any of your neighbors could go over and just take whatever they want. If you got home and you called, and they'd be like, ah, no, we can't do anything about it. You're one of those, those people. Would we still have the same amount of attendance at church? I'm just throwing that out there. I don't even know, like, would I go? Would I, like, leave my son at home? You know, like, you th I mean, this is what's happening here. They're going, I'm going to church, if you want to call it. I'm going to jail to be with everybody. And that means uh, no one's here protecting my stuff and the world's going to take it. What do I go? I'll see you in church next Sunday. 
Only when we understand the larger picture, only when we see the truth of God's word can we respond this way. And even when we go even further than that, the joy in the life of believer is seeing the big picture. And so now let's go to the point, if you look at a world around us, there is one major, major end of all the fun. The world around us loves pleasure. The world around us loves to pursue after things they think are going to bring joy. And you know what the number one Debbie Downer of the pursuit of joy and pleasure is? It's called death. When all of a sudden, death comes. So guess what we're going to try to do if we are living for pleasure? Try to push off death as much as we can ignore it. There's some times that you... As a pastor, you get to be at a lot of funerals, all right? It's just one of those interesting things that happens as a pastor. And you know the fun thing to do? I don't know if I call this fun. The interesting thing to do is watch a non-believer's response at a funeral compared to a believer's response at a funeral. When you're talking at a funeral, believers are looking at you in the eye and going, yeah, we know the big story. The unbeliever is looking down going, when can we get out of here? Because I do not want to handle this, to this topic. I don't want to talk about it. I don't want to think about it because just death is the end and there's no more. It's just interesting how that goes because as believers, we understand that death literally is the key that unlocks the door to endless joy and praise with God. Let's think about this for a moment. When we truly understand the heartache and sorrow in this world, death literally is the key that unlocks the door to endless joy and unbelievable fulfillment with God and God alone. So here's another way of thinking about this. Suppose one day I come up to you and I tell you that in 20 or 30 years from now, you are going to go on the most unbelievable vacation Ever. And when that day comes, this vacation will be better than the, any vacation you've ever been on. And you know what the cool part about this is? You never come home. You are on vacation the rest of your life. And even further than that, it's a nonstop vacation. And so you're toiling here, you're working and things like that. And all of a sudden I come up to you, maybe 10 years into that, and I say, hey, I've got some news for you. It looks like in a month or two from now, you're going to have to go on that vacation. Or some of you may all of a sudden find out it's like two days from now you're going, or there's a momentary. Most of you would not go, oh, come on, I got some things here I still got to do. You know, I've got to finish this project at, at my job, or I got to do this. You go, no, I can't wait to go there. For the believer, that's how our heart is. When you hear, hey, what you thought the time came had moved up, you're going to go even greater. But what happens is we can get so bought into this worldly way of thinking that right now is all that matters, and right now is that they're all there, there is. And so many things here in this world that are like mud pies, we think that they're the greatest thing ever, when by the shore we've been given this phenomenal time, and we sit here and go, let me play in the streets, when the promise is even far greater in front of us. And so then, when we have... All that matters is right now, we become so easily agitated, we become so materialistic in our thinking, and all of these things we start to hoard because we think that all that matters is right now when God comes in and he says, don't forget the joy that was, is out there, that is for you to be found in Christ and Christ alone. Because listen to the way this plays out. Go back to Luke 2. In Luke chapter 2, when the angels are coming... And they're right there before the shepherds, which I think is, a, is an amazing thing. 
So these shepherds who are out keeping uh, watch on their flocks by night. So they're on the hills of Bethlehem. And the angel of the Lord in verse 9, chapter 2, verse 9, and the angel of the Lord appears, and here's what he says. The, first of all, the glory of the Lord is shining around them, right? And they're really scared. Because I always love this thing, a uh, little sidebar here. When angels show up, people are scared. Let's just throw that out there. You, this whole idea of little cubit things running around shooting arrows and all those other things, right? When the angels show up, usually their first message is, do not be afraid. Because this is an other, a terrifying thing that is taking place on them, in front of them, right? So the angels show up, and they say, don't be afraid. Fear, fear not, he says, for behold, I bring good news. And what is the good news? Of great joy that will be for all the people. The gospel truth is that great joy that will be to all the people. And what is the gospel truth? For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is the Messiah. This is what he's saying. The Savior who is the Messiah. That long, longed for one has finally been here. And then he says, and by the way, if you want to know who it is, the sign is you'll find a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes lying in a manger. And it was almost as if the heavens could not contain this great news of great joy anymore. And what do they do? They break out in song. Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. That is our response when we hear that great news of great joy. The response, and when we start looking at these, that the hope candle, the hope that one day the Messiah will come, that we can have peace with God, that we celebrated that communion, and it should respond in the middle here with joy and adoration before God. The, the song we're about ready to sing here is going to be talking about that it's going to say, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and immediately the words go, And he shall reign forevermore. And it's like you're going to go, What happened in between? What happened in between was his birth and him coming, what has been prophesied, will happen, and it has happened. So what does that mean about everything else? He will reign forevermore. It is as good as done. And so where are we to live in? The joy of knowing that. How are we to interact with others as we go throughout our week? We are to interact with one another with a joy that no matter what this world has to say, no matter what this world throws at us, we have this unstoppable internal response to the truth of who God is that gives us a life of joy. Now, I want to be clear real quick. That does not mean that we always walk around with some weird plastered smile on our face, all right? That, you know, they say, you know, the, sometimes we can be almost over, we want to call it religious, if that's even a word. You know where the Bible commands us to be joyful, all right? And so I want to make sure we're clear. We're, we don't live in the world that beatings will continue until morale improves, all right? That we just start thinking, you know, the only way is that. But what this means is we have an internal, I would even call it an anchor, that no matter what this world has to offer us of heartache and sorrow, we see the big picture, we see that these things are but momentary afflictions and what they are being used by God to bring us closer to Him. If you've ever lifted weights, you know that in order to get stronger, you need to lift weights that are heavy. All right, Because they, then the muscles need to ache and they need to be sore because through that aching and through that soreness, strength is built. This is what God has called us to. But through those things, through these heartaches, through these sorrows, through these things that Jesus even lived here on earth, all of that was done 
to point us that not to ourselves, but to Him and Him alone. And that's why my hope and my prayer for you guys is this. So as we turn our hearts and our minds, as we get even closer to Christmas, that you would see joy as not a momentary thing, but a thing that anchors your heart and mind in Him and Him alone, that no matter what happens, you're willing to say, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. That your heart and your mind are towards Him and Him alone. Let's pray and then lift our voices in song. Dearly Father, thank You that You are the one to bring joy and peace and love and hope into the world. Thank You that it is from You and it is through You and it is by You that all of these things happen. Thank You for giving us a glimpse of the joy that You even take in redeeming people to Yourself. Thank You that while we were lost sheep, You pursued after us and called us to be Your own. Thank you for that. May your praise always be on our lips. We ask these things in your son's name we pray. Amen.